You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Kyle Wood, host of Art Smart and Who Arted. Right now, I'm asking you to help support this show by filling out the network survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. The network is conducting this listener survey to help us improve our shows and find sponsors that you might actually be interested in. As an added bonus, if you take a few minutes to fill out the survey, you'll be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card as our way of saying thank you. So please help us out and go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. I feel like who art ed. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to be looking at Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Now, joining me, I have probably the most frequent guest on the podcast, who also happens to be the teacher who got the most shout-outs on the form for my giveaway, although I'm going to send another prize to the runner-up, because I think it never hurts to be a little extra generous. So, Ms. Lamson in North Carolina, if you're listening, check your inbox. Your students appreciate all that you do for them. Now, I'm going to put an end to what has to be my most rambling introduction yet and say welcome to Chuck Hoff. Thanks for joining me. Uh, well, thank you for having me. And um, what that means to my kids, I said, we'll probably get some type of food item in the in the, in the uh, classroom. <laughs> Be a, there'll be a party. It wasn't a stretch to like, I will say this, it wasn't a stretch to bribe them, but uh, because they were pretty excited to do uh, the tournament, uh, they'll be excited for round two next week, especially their former students. They were, they couldn't wait to do this, uh, to, you know, arts madness. So, well, thank you for that. Uh, I I think it's funny because I have now so many of my students who have older siblings that are going to your school and like the younger siblings are now like, do you know Mr. Hoff? He's awesome. Just like, yeah, you got to wait a few more years. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's get on to our actual topic for today, which is Renoir. Now, it's it's funny, Renoir, you know, the two of us were talking um, before we hit record. I think both of us kind of feel the same way, like before doing this episode and the research and everything like that. I kind of just lumped him in with like Monet and Sicily and, you know, all the great French impressionists, but I didn't really give it much thought. You know, he was one like I knew so many of the works, but didn't really know him. 
if that makes sense. Uh, correct. You know, when you're studying our history in college, let's say, you just lump them up with the style. So the style takes over and the individual artist doesn't really make that distinction as like maybe Picasso, you, he can stand, he, he kind of transcended um, cubism. So then you yeah. just think Picasso is standing alone. But with the Impressionists, they seem to be lumped together. And I think rightfully so, because they kind of hung out together. Yeah, I mean, as we'll see, they kind of supported each other and built the movement and exhibited together. So it it is natural to sort of lump them together in in your mind. But, you know, it is a group that was made of individuals. So we're going to learn a little bit more about Renoir today. He was born February 25th, 1841. He was in France. His family moved to Paris in 1845. His father was a tailor. I guess at 13, he was ready to enter the workforce because, you know, childhood didn't really come around until the 20th century. Um, He apprenticed working in a porcelain factory. He was doing stuff like decorating plates with bouquets of flowers and stuff like that. So effectively like painting the glazes onto the porcelain stuff. After that porcelain work, he starts painting fans and cloth banners for churches and all of that sort of just like traditional decorative arts, you know, the applied arts, I guess we would probably call it today. He really enjoyed that type of work, though. So he saved his money to study painting in earnest. In 1862, he began taking courses at um, Ecole des Beaux-Arts, which, like, I think he's one of the few Impressionists who could actually get in to um, Beaux-Arts. I feel like most of the others were rejected by Beaux-Arts, just like they were rejected by the Paris salons. That's kind of the reason they stuck together. But during this time, he also studied taking classes like under a Swiss painter, Charles Glaire. Um, probably nowhere near right on the pronunciation there, but he was studying in another artist's studio. That was kind of the common practice. Like I said, this was the age of apprenticeships and guilds and stuff like that. It was a pretty rigid kind of formal style, I guess. You know, he like. Glaire had learned from Ingres, the like neoclassical painter. And Renoir didn't really like the rigid teaching style. I think that kind of shows in his later works. But he was doing it. And he did get along quite well with some other artists who were studying in that same studio. Um, specifically, Sicily and Monet. So, again, some pretty big names in the... Um, the Impressionist movement, like the center of that that circle, was all studying under the same artist. And I guess all kind of hating it, too. Do we know why they were hating it or no? I, I think just like it was very traditional academic. They kind of felt like painting should be out of the studio. It should be directly from nature instead of like this very formal approach. I think it's one of those things that like the 19th century, there was a really big upheaval in society, obviously with the industrial revolution. But as I've talked about before, like 
technology was really changing the arts. We have the obvious like photography was coming about and um, like photography came about middle of the 19th century. So right about this time. And also the tube of paint. I, I know the tube of paint doesn't seem like something that has to be invented, but like everything else it did. The tube of paint came about. Um, I think that was the 1840s as well. I'd have to look it up, but it was like the 1840s, give or take 1841 um, that was invented. And so the invention of the tube of paint kind of changed the way that people painted, because before that part of an artist's training was not just how to apply paint, but literally like the recipes, how to grind up pigments and make their own paints. And like they would store the paints traditionally like in a pig's bladder, which gross but also really inconvenient to be moving around. You know what I'm saying? Like they would poke a hole in that bladder to like get a little bit of the paint out. And within a matter of days, any paint that was stored in there would dry out. So like you can't really carry around a collection of those things out into a field to paint directly from nature. They had to have everything in the studio so they could grind up the pigments and mix them and and use them while they're fresh. So when the tube of paint came around, it was like all of a sudden they could take that stuff out into nature. And that's what um, Renoir, Monet, Sisley, Bazier, again trying on the pronunciation i'm sure i'm wrong there but they moved out to like a forest of fontainebleau and painted directly from nature just what they saw can you imagine taking you know your your best four or five friends and just having the freedom to go anywhere and set up shop and so like when our family goes to national parks so we'll travel to a lot of western national parks um, people will take their summers and sketch, uh, the landscapes. So a lot of times we'll ask them like, you know, what are you doing on this rock? And they're like, well, we got an internship to stay here at the national park and the sketch and, um, and the sketch, the landscapes. And, and that's what I feel we draw ourselves back to is this romantic expression that like all of this, this, you know, the group started. Um, that allowed this freedom and then they can go out with their friends and really begin understanding color, you know, and, and how it was placed and get out of the studios. I don't know. That's what I'm drawn to. And I'm sure some people have since been drawn to as I immediately think of like Ernie Barnes, you know, a podcast that we did together. And I'm thinking, you know how it is. It's just, we are all naturally drawn to, uh, previous artists to allow us the inspiration and give us a little bit of confidence. They blaze the path. Right. And yeah. yeah. And I could just think of like, what was he thinking? What was Ernie Barnes thinking? Did he go back to impressionism? You know, did he go back to, you know, post impressionism? Did he think like, you know, I want to do this. Well, I think it's that evolution of styles that we're seeing over time. And in some ways, it seems so simple and just 
pleasant, it's easy to forget how kind of revolutionary it was because they were upending everything about the traditional painting methods. They were in a lot of ways doing away with the emphasis of line and drawing and focusing just on the color and the value. They were getting outside of the studio. They were really changing where, when, how paintings were being produced. And in a lot of ways, it was fresh and exciting and liberating, but it was also to people who were established artists and established curators and and critics, they were like, you're doing it wrong. This isn't what we're used to. We don't like this. This makes us uncomfortable. And so that's why the Impressionists were often rejected by the Paris Salon and they set up their own shows outside of that structure. And there were some people who loved it. There there was one critic who talked about how Renoir's paintings were fresh and invigorating without being bawdy or over the top. And another critic, Albert Wolf, said if he learned to draw, Renoir would have a very pretty picture. So after the break, we're going to talk about that specific picture he was talking about. Luncheon of the Boating Party from 1881. And so now we're back and we're going to be talking about one of Renoir's most famous. This is largely considered to be one of his masterpieces. The Luncheon of the Boating Party from 1881. So right off the bat, what are you seeing here? What are you noticing? Light. So with uh, with light comes, um, I, I do see a triangle as well, where where lady sitting on the, she's kind of leaning on a post, uh, and she's looking into conversations. So to me, I see the emphasis. I see like there's a little bit of an academic a- attempt to to bring the viewer in through the table, mm-hmm. uh, and to the to the person with the yellow hat, and there's three of them, three or four yellow hats which seemed to be um, the more lighthearted, like, you know, they took off their suit, they took off their shirt, they're just kind of like really relaxed. There's wine on the table. Um, I also noticed that um, each character has a little bit of a glow that that I think the artists use as uh, an attempt to brighten up the picture. Um, because again, you have the you have the shade that should be um, making this a little bit of a darker, um, setting, you know, taking that some yeah. of that natural light away, uh, it appeals to me. And, it and the, the last thing, um, that I will say like initially is each character, their positioning is done kind of on purpose to give them an equal weight in the, in the painting. So I feel like a couple of the positions are almost unnatural in a way because they kind of leap into it's almost like i see like four or five of them doing photo bombs without really knowing it <laughs> you know because they're you know i see two or three that are naturally looking away from the painting but there is a, a really intentional attempt to like get everybody a little bit of um att- equal attention Yeah, I think there's something interesting about the way that all the figures are engaged with each other. 
You know what I'm saying? Like everybody is looking at somebody else or as I look at where one figure seems to be looking, it leads my eye towards another. You know what I mean? We see the woman who's talking to the dog. We see, as you said, the woman in the straw hat, um, almost central to the the sort of trying implied triangle of the composition um at the the top of that triangle we see a woman who's facing another man who's facing back at her you know we see the man who's leaning over the table and the woman who's turning looking up at him we see the guy in the bottom right corner in the straw hat again um sitting slater style in the chair backwards in the chair seems very sort of relaxed but he's also looking in towards the group he's looking at the woman um who's focused on the dog and the guy who's standing against the the railing like it all comes together and it it feels in some ways like a photograph just a snapshot of this party but at the same time we all know when you take a snapshot you know, there's always somebody who's looking a little wonky. There's looking the wrong way, whose eyes are closed. So he kind of gives it that snapshot feel, but with the light Photoshop, getting everybody to really look their best. As you say, he he makes it a little bit brighter. I mean, we do get that hint of shadowing, but it's a brighter version of this, you know, because it, it needs to work on on the canvas it needs to to show their faces we can't have too dark of shadows otherwise it's just not so pleasant to look at and i understand where the focus and the attention is but sometimes i i drift off you know to the corners of the canvas because yeah. i find that like to be where like what do you do with the corners if you know you want 90 percent of your attention to be on that figure so like i can only imagine what how long it took him to get the hand placed within the dog's fur or, um, you know, the still life. So here, here's what I'm thinking. The still life in front of us is like a Cezanne, you know, like influence or Cezanne was influenced by this painting either or, but in the corner, I see Monet's touch, you know, like I can see him saying, leaning into his friend and saying, um, to Monet, how do I, you know, how do I execute that little bit of water and the shadowing and the and the sailboats? And what do I do to make that less of an emphasis? And you can see these large bushes that yeah. that cover a beautiful park scene that I'm not sure. I think there was like artistic freedom. I would love to know if that actual setting there really was blocked. That's what I'm paying money for. I'm sitting at that table and I want to see all of that. And I think there's a little artistic um, liberty in knowing that I don't want to go to Monet's section and 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 paint all of this. So I'm going to go ahead and brush this really loose bush that seems to be everywhere, um, bringing the people closer to us. So I'm fascinated by that because I, I I like to see the little corners of the painting to see what he, what he did and what kind of decisions he made. Um, and maybe how he leaned into a friend or two and just said, what do I do here and what do I do there? Yeah, and I, I think um, it, it's an interesting point about looking at the corners. I I also kind of am in the habit of looking at the edges of works because I feel like it's around the perimeter that you see like who's really 
worked through this and you know how sometimes like you see like what looks pretty good in the center of the frame and then like it just kind of falls apart at the edges there's little stuff the brilliance is in the details um but on the topic of his friends i don't think we've talked too much about this he had a habit of painting his friends so the people in this picture really are his friends um the guy in the bottom right in the the straw hat uh sleeveless shirt that's gustav kaibat kaibat i don't know um gustav the the guy who painted um rainy day paris street it's like every art teacher's go-to for an example of two-point perspective you know the one i'm talking about i do actually yes it's it's at the Art Institute of Chicago, massive painting right in the entrance to their Impressionist galleries, um, or at least it was back when I was going to school there. But he was not only an Impressionistic painter, if I'm being honest, he his work doesn't quite feel all that Impressionistic to me. He was a little bit more rigid and realistic in his painting style but he was also a patron of the impressionists and like would put together shows and help support them financially so he was a really important figure in that movement and we see him kind of getting that nice important placement in this composition he's right in the foreground the other person who's right in the foreground the woman sitting with the dog um she was Aline Cherigot, and she was like a seamstress, but also she married Renoir in 1890. The two of them had three sons together. So like, obviously, she meant something to him. And he's putting her not just in the composition, in the front of the composition. I think there's something nice about the fact that he's focusing on his friends, and that comes through in the tone like this has that warm positive feel like it's just got good vibes radiating from this and that's probably partially because of the poses they seem relaxed they seem engaged with each other like it seems like a nice group of friends hanging out but also because of the colors he chose because he brightened it he didn't put them in too dark of shadow even though there's that awning covering them and all of that there is a there is one section of drama. So if you look at the straw hat man who's leaning against the um, railing mm-hmm. in front of the woman with the dog, he's intentionally looking over to the corner of the painting, and that corner of the painting is the only corner that I felt like he used a um, uh, different color scheme. One of which was like super bright. So this bush and this tree has colors that really aren't grouped quite as um, closely as anywhere else in the painting. So then I'm thinking, of course, you know, the, oh, he wanted to emphasize like the tree was really close. And of course, that you, you, when you're painting, those are pretty intense colors. Then I look at the figures and he's got his arm around the woman who has both hands over her ears. And the guy is consoling her, like both of them, Hmm. with, again, somebody in the foreground, you know, looking over the party, just wondering what's going on over in that corner. 
And so that that was that was kind of cool because it was like I, I can actually see that happening. There's always was, one at every point. There's always one, like a misunderstanding <laughs> or whatever. And I wonder if that was intentional. I wonder if he, you know, and and again to the point where you know, I wish he could draw or whatever the criticism <laughs> was. Look at her hand. I mean, her hand is pretty bent. The fingers are bent in such a way that like her thumb is unusually large and and whatever. It doesn't really matter um, because, you know, we're looking at many other things before we look over in that corner. But um, it's it's a pretty cool moment over there in the corner. And so they, just getting to the point of watching and looking at all the corners I, I would love to know the story behind it. You know, was it someone in their party of 15 that created drama or, you know, maybe had a sensitivity to noise or whatever it was? And was he deliberate? And because, you know, nobody's posing like this for 10 hours. Yeah. But um, but he was really, he put them in. And, and if you left them out, um, I mean, he could have left them out and, and it still would have been a full picture. But, but he was really, he was really intentional putting those three in. That's true. And, and, and yeah, and they're not really, they're not really um, as warm as everything else in the picture. That's all. It's true. But I, I think, you know, it, it probably gets back to just the, I, the compositional principle of like balance, you know, you've got to have, you got to have the dark to appreciate the light. You've got to have, you know, the, the people who maybe, something went slightly wrong, but they're being consoled and stuff like that. And someone else is like checking on their friend, noticing something's wrong. Like it's, it's a larger scope of, of emotion there. I I suppose you could say, because whenever you bring together a group of people, there's going to be that range of expressions, but they're all in it together, I think is kind of central to it. That gives it a warmer tone in the, the final composition. And I think I I do feel like I probably want to clarify for people who don't understand why he would get criticism on the drawing for this, because by today's standards, this feels totally fine in terms of the drawing and the draftsmanship. Um, But again, for, for the day, this was really, really loose compared to what people had been doing. You know, the the classic European tradition was try to get it as accurate as possible. And the brushstrokes blended so finely that you could not see it. They were trying for that realism, that naturalism above all else. And here it feels casual because he's not really doing a lot of line work. There's no hard edges defining these figures. It's all just the the little dashes of colors that give it this slight soft focus. And in a lot of ways, I think that the softness of the focus makes it feel more positive. It makes it feel nicer. It's what, it's what makes it beautiful. But to some people that just wasn't, that just wasn't what they were used to. They wanted something that was more rigid, more strictly defined yeah, and to your and to your point, like um, I think junior high has taught me, like this is the first time um, uh, kids can really commit, uh, you know, fifteen, twenty, thirty hours a week into a formal schooling. You know, like not just in 
our junior high, but they're taking some of these classes um, outside of the junior high and they, they are teaching hyper-realism. You know, I think that that generates good business for the teacher because it wows the parents, right? Yeah. But it makes a great discussion in the classroom as to like um, murals that you step 15 feet away and that they're really impactful. But if you step too close, if you're like right up on it, it won't have the hyper-realism. And, and so I, I, I pit, you know, sometimes we have groups of people who have those two theories and they're converging and they have to work together. And it, it is pretty fun to watch, you know, just stand back a little bit and they kind of, they're like arguing, you know, about which is better. I'm like, well, where you want your audience to be standing when you're looking at the painting. Well, I guess on that topic of arguing, which is better, shall we wrap this up? Yep. You bet. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the a poop joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. I think you savor it. And I don't know if I come out. I may say this every single time I'm on your podcast. So <laughs> I might, I, like, lucky for you, have other people that you invite but but here's why, uh, for me, I again I'm looking at corners of this painting and I see um, um, a few styles and influences of his friends. I know they were out on a limb when they had to do when they were doing these paintings. I also we didn't we didn't talk about it much, but he had arthritis, and so this would have been someone I looked up to because he was painting, but in in such pain. What did he say? Something like. To the point of pain passes, but beauty remains. There it is. And so as a character, um, I hold him in high esteem, you know, regard. And in, and in, as a painting, I believe it was the front end of a really awesome movement that allowed um, some of your urban artists and, and country artists like Hargrove and to um, blossom, you know, to like use him as a, as a reference and look back. Yeah, I think he paved the way for a lot of artists, and I I would agree this feels like a museum piece to me. Um, if you had asked me like a month ago, I, I probably would have said something different. But I think the fact is like the more I research and the more I look critically at it, the more I find to appreciate. And with Renoir specifically, the fact that he learned these traditional methods and then loosened up a little bit makes him sort of the perfect transitional figure. And I love the fact that as he's as he's breaking this new ground, um, as he's exploring, developing these new ways of painting and engaging with the world, He's doing it with his friends. He's focused on the beauty. He's trying to hold up something that just brings joy. And I feel like that is something that needs to be taken seriously. Leisure is often dismissed as as frivolous. And, you know, I, I think it's a fundamental need that people have to build that connection and that positivity in interacting with their friends and their community and and those around them and i see i see that largely as the emphasis of a lot of renoir's body of work like he's he's not just painting a haystack in a field 
he's painting these people coming together and it it feels very pro social to me in a way that i think i think we need and 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 to your point i think too when you get a little grouping of artists together they're having real conversations as to what needs to be ultra or hyper realistic in the painting like i'm in love with the table it looks awesome you know the uh, he, he has the glass Little highlights bottles. on the glass and everything. Yeah. Like I'm like, I always he, love that stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I do too. And he, and he spent time there, but then he had it. I'm sure he had some conversation as to what do we all do with the background? What, how do we have it fade? How do we have less emphasis and how can we keep, or how, how do we, um, develop this style? How do we stay in this movement? Um, and what do we do to do that? So. Which feels like a photographic influence in like when you think of the depth of field and how things get softer focus as they get farther. You know what I'm saying? 100%. And more so now than ever, right? Our cameras are um, doing that for us, our iPhones, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So I agree with you. Cool. Well, thank you very much for being a wonderful friend, always willing to come in and give up a little bit of your free time to join me on the pod. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, you bet. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.